0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Fleto. Now it's time to check in on the state of science.
1: This is for WWNO, St. Louis
2: Public Radio. Iowa Public Radio News.
0: Local science stories of national significance. Lead mining and smelting, a process to extract metal, lasted for more than a century in some parts of the Midwest. And where you have mining, you have waste. Lead is still being detected in the water and soil, posing a serious health threat. But now researchers are turning to plants for help. Here to tell us more about it is Niara Savage, a fellow with the NPR Midwest Newsroom and the Missouri Independent based in St. Louis. Welcome to Science Friday.
3: Glad to be here.
0: Nice to have you. Okay, first of all, how did the lead from these mines spread out?
3: So after the mining industry left states like Kansas and Missouri, the mine tailings were left behind for many years, unstabilized. And so in places like Missouri, there's uh, mine piles that span more than a thousand acres. And so there's a couple of ways that it was spread. And one of those is actually people mechanically transporting those materials and taking them to use, you know, for their own yards, as gravel and things like that for home projects. And another way is that when it rains, of course, the soil is wet and that can create runoff that can cause that contaminated soil to spread.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's a very urgent problem, obviously, to solve. Tell me the, the idea of using plants to help solve that problem.
3: Larry Erickson is the former director for the Center for Hazardous Substance Research at Kansas State University. And so he published some research last year that shows that plants can actually form root systems that are complex enough to contain the lead in soil. And so if you plant a specific plant they refer to in the study is um, miscanthus grass. And so this is a really great candidate because it produces a lot of biomass. It only needs tillage in the first year. Planting that into contaminated soil sites in Fort Riley, Kansas, yielded root systems complex enough to actually maintain and contain the water that fell onto that land in just a two year period. And so that keeps the contaminated soil and water from running off into different locations.
0: Wow, and and how's that affecting what people can eat and drink?
3: lead could contaminate the drinking water. And so that's especially true for um, communities that depend on well water. And another factor is also that plants or crops that are planted in contaminated soil can actually absorb and take up that lead into their roots and leaves, and that can become another threat, a lead hazard for people who are consuming crops that may have been planted in contaminated soil.
0: Are some people living in higher risk areas than other people?
3: There's definitely people who are living in higher risk areas. So regions that are near places where the lead mining industry was taking place. So that could be lead uh, smelting or mining. The soil in those areas is definitely associated with higher levels of lead. And then as a result, the people in those communities typically have elevated blood lead levels as well. Riley Thomas was inspired to do research on how to prevent crops from taking up that lead. She noticed that in Lincoln, there's an organization called Community Crops that is purposed with trying to serve people who might live in food deserts by planting vegetables. But she noticed that a lot of the locations where that organization was planting vegetables were tainted with lead. They tried to create
4: community gardens where people can go and have fresh produce so unfortunately, a lot of those areas also have higher contamination of soils just by location near highly trafficked areas or railroads. As the case in the soil that we sampled, it was
3: near a railroad, so that's why I had the high lead.
0: Mm-hmm. Could, could any of these projects be scaled up?
3: So, there are definitely efforts to scale up the projects, specifically the research in Nebraska focused on biochar. Michael Kaiser is a professor of agronomy and horticulture at the University of Nebraska Lincoln, and he explains what biochar is.
0: It's basically charcoal, right? So, it's transforming organic feedstock by pyrolysis, means combustion under low oxygen, into charcoal like material, which you actually put on your If you do a barbecue, right, we just put it in soil.
3: The University of Nebraska-Lincoln is working with the city and money from Bloomberg Philanthropies that they received earlier this year to establish a biochar plant to produce more than 700 tons of biochar a year. One of the applications of biochar is to prevent the crops that are planted in perhaps lead-tainted soil from actually taking up that lead and absorbing it into the plant and becoming a hazard for the people who might eat them.
0: Niera, thank you for sharing your reporting with us.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Niera Savage is a fellow with the NPR Midwest Newsroom and the Missouri Independent based in St. Louis, Missouri. Prosthetic limbs have come a long way since the very first one from ancient Egypt. By the way, it was a big toe made of wood and leather. Now the most high-tech devices are mind-controlled, translating brain waves into movement. But these state-of-the-art prosthetics often involve invasive brain surgeries, and they come with a hefty price tag that can exceed hundreds of thousands of dollars, making them wildly inaccessible for most people. But now, 17-year-old inventor Benjamin Choi is doing something about it. He set out to create an affordable mind-controlled prosthetic Ben's story is part of our series of impressive young inventors who are taking on big problems. Ben hails from McLean, Virginia. Ben, welcome to Science Friday.
5: Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Nice to have you. Tell me what inspired
0: you to create a cheap prosthetic arm.
5: I was initially inspired when I watched a 60 Minutes documentary on brain-controlled prosthetics. I was super amazed by the amazing potential impact of this technology to improve lives, but alarmed that the form of mind control used in this documentary required this really risky open brain surgery and costed over $450,000. So after conducting a lot of extensive research into the many shortcomings of current upper limb prosthetics, I was inspired to come up with a non-invasive solution.
0: Can you walk me through the basics of how it works?
5: Sure. So my solution employs this electrode that's placed on the center of your forehead and essentially all the time when you're awake you have these electrical signals and essentially the underlying theory behind my project which is that these electrical signals are correlated to your underlying brainwave activity and so if we can decipher these electrical signals we can ultimately figure out what you're thinking and then use that to control a prosthetic arm. The problem with this is that these electrical signals on your forehead because They're not invasive because they're one step removed from the actual brain itself. They're very complex and hard to decipher. And so what I used to decipher these very complex electrical signals was this new AI algorithm that I created. I collected brainwave recordings from this wide slate of human participants, and then I used those recordings to train this new artificial intelligence model that essentially learns to decipher those electrical signals and figures out what you're thinking.
0: Wow. So were you successful in controlling a prosthetic using that kind of
5: technology? Yes, the AI algorithm is very effective. The structure of the model actually is that it's designed to tailor itself to each individual user over time. And so the more brainwaves it gets from a a user, the better the AI gets at reading those specific brainwaves.
0: So your AI is basically teaching itself. It's, It's getting better the more it gets used.
5: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: And uh, what kinds of prosthetics can it control now?
5: So right now it's just optimized for this upper limb prosthetic arm, but definitely one of the things I'm super interested in exploring in the future is this AI algorithm for brainwave interpretation could have so many more applications beyond just upper limb prosthetics. I think it could be used for so many different brain-computer interface applications, like, for example, helping patients with ALS communicate.
0: Right. But now we have heard of other people working on such projects. What is your competitive advantage in the way that you do this?
5: One of the advantages of my system is because I'm using AI to interpret brainwaves and sort of fill in some of the gaps, the system can work with very little data. So I actually only need one sensor on the forehead and, and then one baseline sensor versus conventional EEG setups require hundreds and hundreds of electrodes, making them really impractical for everyday use. In fact, my system is has achieved the highest ever accuracy on interpreting EEG data from just one sensor. It's at over 95%. The previous best was around 73.8%, I believe.
0: Wow. Wow. So why do you get such
5: better results? I think the the main thing driving the success is not only the fact that I'm using this AI algorithm, but this AI algorithm I've developed has a very special structure as well. Essentially, what I'm doing is I'm taking different ai models that have completely different structures and i'm giving them each the same packet of data and each of these new ai models essentially outputs their own prediction independently of the other models and then they conduct like a bit of a vote and so what i'm trying to do here is i was trying to fill in the potential gaps that one ai model might have at predicting brainwaves through these other models that approach the problem completely differently and think in a completely different way
0: Hmm. So you haven't invented a different kind of sensor. You've actually created much better AI to interpret the brainwaves. And what's your next step with this?
5: Sure. So I definitely want to make this something that amputees can actually use and, you know, see this all the way through. One of the things that's been really inspiring for me is I've been able to work with an upper limb amputee who's provided a lot of feedback on my work, which has been super cool and, and definitely really motivating in this process. Next, I'm definitely hoping to test this device on actual upper limb amputees and continue to get more feedback. And so I can keep improving it until it can be something that people can actually use.
0: How has the response been to what you wanted to do? Has it been supportive or have people sort of said, oh, yeah, you yeah, go ahead, try to do that?
5: Yeah, I think the response has been very positive, especially I've had so many members of the amputee community actually reach out and talk to me and and give feedback and advice that's been just so helpful for me throughout this process. And so, yeah, I think I received a, a lot of support from them.
0: Now, I understand you're going to Harvard next semester. Congratulations. Are you going to be continuing your work there?
5: Yeah, definitely. You know, there are tons of ways I really want to continue to improve this project. One is specifically with the actual physical model of the prosthesis itself. Designing it was a very lengthy process, but there are still so many ways I'd like to continue to upgrade the design. And some of these will require, you know, investments in in new materials or new socket fitting that I'll really want to do. I was fortunate enough to receive a lot of funding from this company in California, Polyspectra, who really helped me on the material side. But still, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in sort of creating a socket. And also another thing is the clinical trial process is a very lengthy process. It can be very expensive. And so that's another thing I would really like to get more funding on. And then just, of course, continuing to improve my algorithm, advance that even further.
0: Benjamin Choi, inventor and student in McLean, Virginia, heading to Harvard this coming semester. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. Last week, we were talking about cancer vaccine research. We're continuing our look into the latest in cancer therapy, and this week, CAR T-cell therapy, in which a patient's own immune cells are modified to create a hybrid immune cell that destroys cancer cells. CAR T-cell therapy is not new, it's been around for over a decade, but researchers are continuing to find success in treating new types of cancer with the therapy, and they're working on many more. And on top of that, scientists are starting to investigate the utility of this therapy for conditions other than cancer, autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis and lupus. Joining me now is Dr. Carl June, one of the pioneers of CAR T-cell therapy. He's professor of immunotherapy and director of the Center for Cellular Immunotherapies at the University of Pennsylvania based in Philadelphia. Welcome back to Science Friday.
6: Thanks, Ira. It's great to be back.
0: Nice to talk to you. Okay, let's start with a quick refresher course. Tell us about what CAR T-cells are and how the
6: therapy works. Well, sure. So... A CAR T-cell is a chimera, and, and all those Greek mythologists out there, a chimera was a fusion of three animals, a, a lion, a goat, and a serpent, and a, a chimeric T-cell is a fusion of a bee and a T-cell. You know, over the years, the public didn't know what a bee and a T-cell was. We first learned about T-cells when HIV came out, and HIV kills T-cells, and then people lose their immune systems. And then... B-cells, I think we've all learned about what they do over COVID. You know, B-cells make antibodies, and we've all learned about how, for instance, your antibody against spike protein, for instance, can protect you against COVID. So B-cells make those antibodies, and T-cells don't. A CAR T-cell is a chimera, a fusion of a B and a T-cell, so that now you can have a T-cell that can do what T-cells do, but they also can... Uh, have an antibody in there as normally what would be done by a B cell.
0: So these are sort of designer cells that each individual patient has. You have to create that from for,
6: from the patient's cells, correct? Yeah, that's, that's one of the parts that's a big paradigm shift of this. You know, the pharmaceutical industry uh, heretofore has always made drugs, you know, where one shoe size fit all which has a lot of economy of scale. You can make one drug that's for everyone. In this case, the CAR T cells are made individually or bespoke for each patient. So the patient actually donates blood. The cells are shipped to the manufacturing center and then shipped back after the manufacturing as CAR T cells and then given as a simple blood infusion.
0: And the last time we had you on the show we discussed the exciting milestone that two patients you treated with CAR T-cells a decade ago are still in remission, a, a cure even. And now there's a new generation of CAR T-cell therapies that are more potent and attack different cancers beyond the blood cancers.
6: Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's correct. I mean, it's, it's rapidly evolving from what was basically an academic experiment in a few laboratories to now it's an industry that's worldwide. You know, initially, the CAR T cells we made were approved for leukemia, acute leukemia, which is not a common disease, and, and it's a blood cancer. And as you mentioned, you know, those initial patients appear to be cured. Now, over this last year, CAR T cells have been approved also for myeloma, which is the most common blood cancer in adults. The major significance of this is it shows that it's not a one-trick pony. So this shows that it's a generalizable strategy, that you can change the warhead that comes out of the B cell at will and then target virtually any uh, cell in your body. Even cells in your brain, like glioblastoma? Yeah, that's a very exciting area. And in fact, Marcella Mouse, who's at uh, Harvard now, has had trials targeting uh, glioblastoma, and there is a recent trial from Stanford uh, targeting another molecule called GD2 in a childhood brain cancer. Uh, so there's even into the brain, as you mentioned.
0: Hmm. What about one really deadly cancer, pancreatic cancer? Any hope
6: there? Well, pancreatic cancer has been, I think, uh, safe to say since my days in medical school, the worst of the worst. You know, It has not responded to so-called checkpoint therapies that have previously revolutionized cancer therapy and now are first line for lung cancer and melanoma and other cancers. They, they just don't work in pancreatic cancer. And now there are CAR T cells that work in, in mice and laboratory models for pancreatic cancer. But as of yet, I mean, the responses are still uh, disappointing in, in humans and there's a, a large need for research there.
0: And I understand that CAR T cells are now being tested in early clinical trials to treat autoimmune
6: disorders too. Yeah, that's a really exciting area. You know, autoimmune disease was found to be an overreaction of the immune system against your own normal body tissues. And and that's in, in fact, in, at some level, what we try to provoke with cancer immunotherapy, You know, to destroy a body tissue, in this case a cancer tissue autoimmunity is maybe is is up between 10 and 20% of, of adults in the US you know it's been treated but never cured before the the great news has been that biologics have come out to treat diseases such as arthritis and multiple sclerosis but they haven't been curative that adds up to a significant expense and and frankly just the patients would uh, prefer cure therapies So there are exciting trials open now in lupus, which is one of the systemic autoimmune diseases. And, you know, a very intriguing case report published in the New England Journal of Medicine about a year ago showed a 20-year-old Asian woman who was treated with a single infusion of CAR T cells and her disease went into remission. And, you know, I've spoken to the investigators in this, it's a, you know, first in human phase one trial that that complete remission is ongoing, and they now have multiple other patients like that. So wow, this is really an important early-stage uh, area of research.
0: Is that because, the, as you said before, the, su- the success is because these are designed specifically for a person's genetic makeup?
6: Yeah, so they come from our own T cells, which each person has, and and unless you have an identical twin the only person who can ever be a donor for you at this point is yourself. So it's not like red blood cells where, you know, we have if you're O negative you can be a universal donor. So T cells at this point uh all come have to come from the patient themselves and then they can now be modified at will with gene engineering, you know, either genetic editing uh using technologies such as CRISPR and Cas9 or with uh, insertion techniques to knock in genes that make the T-cells that you have, you know, to be weapons that can target virtually any cell in the body at will. It's really a remarkable new advance that came from the confluence of many new genetic technologies.
0: Does this mean that we can develop new drugs a lot faster than, you know, the over a decade-long time periods we have now?
6: Uh, yeah, that's that's been... Something we've learned, uh, so you know what, now that we have, for instance, a lens looking back 10 years from the initial patients we treated uh, with leukemia, so they were given a single infusion of their own T cells that were CAR modified cells. They've lasted 10 years in those patients, and they have not caused any adverse uh, responses, meaning they've been safe. And now thousands of patients have been treated with CAR T cells. You know where they are manufactured from their own cells. So as a group, cell therapies, if they come from your own cells, appear to be very safe. Um, I mean, we've known for many years that cancer drugs that are cytotoxic and have, you know, break DNA as a mechanism of action, they actually can cause cancer. And so far, that has not occurred with you know the patient's own T cells. So. When you go back to the drawing board to make a new CAR T cells, as was done for myeloma that I mentioned that was just approved in this last year, that took less than five years to go from the drawing board to an FDA approved product. And, you know, the usual pharmaceutical cycle, if you look it up, would say it's 10 to 15 years to make a new drug. Uh, so I, now that we have technologies that are validated with, you know, manufacturing cells, uh, I think the drug cycle time for the first time is going to be shorter than the actual patent duration.
0: That's bad news for drug companies.
6: It is, you know, and uh, but it's great news for the patients. It, it means that it, it, it encourages innovation. And in the past, many drug cycle, you know, the competent pharmaceutical industry could rely on patent protection before they needed to have a new drug come out. And now what happens is it's more like cell phones. Each year, if your iPhone's better, you'll switch to that one. And it doesn't matter how much Apple has on patent protection, because what drives innovation in the in the battle between Samsung and iPhones is, you know, is innovation.
0: So let's talk about how expensive all of this still is. How How much does a typical... CAR T-cell therapy cost?
6: So that's, you know, that's right now the Achilles heel of this area. The, because they're made one by one for each patient, they're much more expensive than previous drugs, which are made in batches for, you know, all patients at one time. And so the initial CAR T-cell trial uh, prices for leukemia were around $400,000 per patient. The one bright side on that is that it actually came with a guarantee that it would work. So normally when you get treated, say, for, with cancer therapies, there's no guarantee that it works, and, and, and the hospital and the patient's insurance companies pay for this regardless. Now CAR T cells are given. There, there is, a in leukemia, a guarantee that it will work, and if you're not put in remission, then, <laughs> then the price is rebated.
0: No, i never heard of anything like that. Yeah. Well, and that's before. because
6: these, you know, the initial remission rates were in refractory patients where they literally had weeks to months to live. There was an 80 and 90% complete response rate, which hadn't really ever happened in, in refractory cancers like that. So when you have expensive therapies, they need to be, have, you know, very potent effects to make them worthwhile. And so there's a lot of research now to make them cheaper uh, so that they're not so expensive. But the the sad fact is now that even, you know, patients with myeloma, which used to, when I was in medical school, the survival was two or three years. Now it's eight to ten years, but the textbooks all still say it's incurable. And over that time, patients spend over a million dollars, or their insurance companies do, before they unfortunately have demise from the cancer after many Uh, different kinds of therapies are given. And so if you have an expensive therapy that's $400,000 now, it still can be economically cheaper than what we do right now, which is death by a thousand cuts from many different therapies given month by month over the years.
0: Interesting. Interesting. I I imagine since this is basically handmade for each patient, there's got to be a long line of patients,
6: right, who have heard about this and and are waiting online
0: to get their car T cell therapy
6: so unfortunately that's true that and, and I think this is many new technologies often are limited in production, so at this point the uh, the manufacturers of car T cells on this one by one manufacturing cannot meet the demand, and there is a waiting list you know car T cells are in some ways similar to the um, I think automobile manufacturing where those cars initially made by Henry Ford were put together, you know, initially by hand, you know, one by one on assembly lines. And then now most automobiles are mostly assembled by robotics. And this is, you know, the most expensive part of manufacturing CAR T-cells is human labor with highly trained technicians and scientists. And this needs to become automated, just as automobiles have.
0: Uh, does this uh, manufacture the individual CAR T-cells, do we send them overseas to laboratories, or, or do we do them in the States?
6: So at this point, they're done in the States, and then there are manufacturing centers in Europe. There may well be economic competition. I mean, right now, as you know, we outsource a lot of uh, our IT needs overseas to Asia. And, you know, labor may be cheaper and, and similar in, in South and Central America.
0: This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. You know, listeners to this show know that we here at Science Friday can't get enough information about the microbiome, and I understand that some recent research from your colleagues at UPenn and Memorial Sloan Kettering shows that the microbiome may actually play a role in how well CAR T
6: cell therapy works. That's uh, it's a remarkable response. Uh, I mean, and result. So Melody Smith, who is at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and and. Marco Ruella, a colleague of mine here at the University of Pennsylvania, looked at our patients between New York City and, and Philadelphia and found that their microbiome had a major impact on how they responded to CAR T-cell therapy when they had you know, various blood cancers. And so, I mean, this was astonishing to me because you know this is something, we grow these cells in the lab and you say, how can the microbiome in your GI tract affect these cells that are given to patients. And uh, we've now found in mouse models that, in fact, it validates what we've found in, in the human patients, you know, treated in New York City and Philadelphia.
0: So if you have a better microbiome, in other words, a better kind of uh, bacteria growing in your gut, you you might do better with CAR T-cell therapy?
6: Uh, that's exactly what, what this, re, you know, research suggests and you know, published in Nature Medicine, and I think, You know, there will be now attempts to modify, you know, there are various probiotics and other things to do this at will uh, that may well improve the response rate in patients.
0: You know, um, I'm reminded because I'm of a a certain age, I remember when antibiotics after World War II were called miracle drugs, you know, or do you feel that excited about CAR T-cell therapy, the potential for them that... We are in a paradigm shift
6: on that scale. I, I think, without a doubt. I mean, my colleagues here uh, earlier this year published, uh, I think, quite remarkable responses in repairing heart damage with CAR T cells. And 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 that. So there's now been several studies on that. That you know, normally, if you have a myocardial infarction, it leaves a scar in your heart, and if it's a big enough scar, your heart really doesn't work as a pump anymore. And and now it's been found that you can, you know, make the regeneration of the heart muscle much better. And this is in mice, that that's just one example. I think we're gonna see cell therapies that fix scars in the lung, you know, and and, and hopefully as we, we've we talked autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis and lupus and arthritis.
0: Well, I can only wait and hope and look around for that that day to come, Dr. June.
6: Well, I think it's a very exciting time, and now it's global. It's gone from, you know, just an academic curiosity to it's uh, It's really been exciting to see this in evolution.
0: Dr. June, thank you for taking time to talk with us about this exciting
6: research. It's all my pleasure. Thanks, Ira.
0: Dr. Carl June, Professor of Immunotherapy, Director of the Center for Cellular Immunotherapies at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flatow. You know, we talk a lot about climate change on the program, but we also like to talk about the people who are coming up with solutions to fight it. Sci-Fi producer Dee Peterschmidt is here to tell us about a community of video game developers, I want to hear this, who are taking this challenge to the virtual world. Hi, Dee.
4: Hey, Ara. Yeah, so before we start, have you heard of something called a game jam before?
0: A game jam? I I don't
4: think so. Okay. Have you heard of something called a hackathon? That I have heard about. Okay. So, yeah, you're working on a team to make something in this case like a video game in a very short amount of time. And there's this one that I found out about called the Climate Jam. It's put on by this organization called IndieCade. And the goal of this jam is to make games about climate change.
2: Our goal of having a climate jam has always been to have climate solutions mm. and to be positive. Like we're not looking for some kind of like death and destruction jam.
4: So that was Stephanie Barish. She's the CEO of Indiecade, And she and some other partners started the climate jam five years ago.
2: We're really interested in challenging our community to create something that could potentially make a positive difference. Most people at that time, were just so negative about climate. Like mm. it was doom and destruction. And I thought, wow, the, to make positive change, you have to really look at this from a solutions perspective.
0: All right. She says you have to look at it from a solutions perspective. So you make a game. Have we got a game that won? Yeah, I want to I know how that turned <laughs> out.
4: Yeah. So the game that won is called Row. And we're actually
0: going to play together. Ooh, all right. Let's do that. But before we go, since this is brand new to me, you got to give me a hint of what what the game is all about. Okay, all right. So basically,
4: Rose set in a future where the effects of climate change are a lot more exaggerated. Drought is a much bigger problem. There are these um, two neighboring cities. And when it stops raining, one city builds a dam to hoard all the water. And it leaves the other one in a pretty tough spot. So there's Drought. People are getting sick because of dehydration, including your character's grandmother, and the other city is unwilling to share the water. So your character takes a rowboat to get some fresh water from the other city to get your grandma healthy again. But the rains suddenly start again with a vengeance, and a huge flood ends up submerging and destroying both cities in like kind of the middle of your journey. So through all of this, you have to become rowing partners with someone from the other city who's basically your enemy and... You have to work together to survive. So, yeah, let's get started.
0: Should I? I uh, should I hit the play button on there? Yeah, or? let's
4: let's go ahead and hit play.
0: Okay. I see. It says, "Welcome to your rowboat." Okay. Now I'm rowing. Oh, that was a good stroke. I see how to do this. Yeah. You take shorter strokes. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. Oh, really? Woo! I'm going zipping <laughs> across. Wait, there's another item. It's a fun game. This is a fun game.
4: All right, so. We're gonna put down our oars for a second. We'll come back to the game later, but I just wanted to tell you about some of the other games that were made for the Climate Jam this year. So there's one called Denial Network, and in that one you play as a group of activists fighting against climate change misinformation. There's another called Change Waker, uh, where you play as a cute little sentient blob sailing around an archipelago, helping uh, other cute little sentient blobs solve environmental problems impacting their islands. And sometimes, Stephanie says, these games actually break outside the boundaries of the jam.
2: Last year, a group did a game about garbage collection and recycling. And they ended up going to their city government and creating a game for the city based on the prototype they had created.
4: And having social impact isn't the only unique thing about the Climate Jam.
2: When you join this game jam, you don't just have access to people who can help you make the game. We have people who are content experts.
7: I'm Dargan Frierson. I'm a professor of atmospheric sciences at University of Washington.
4: So Dargan was actually one of these content experts,
7: and he was also a mentor and a judge for the jam. We always look for scientific accuracy. I think it's very important to keep things within the realm of possibility, even when you're looking at fiction.
2: Having science mentors as part of our jams is completely unique. Most jams, honestly, aren't about serious topics. When you have a serious topic, you try and bring in experts. In this case, when people are making games, they really need to understand the information. They they need to understand you know, how wind turbines work or what the real situation is for sea creatures. You get a lot of uh, pretty
7: off-the-wall questions. They're questions like, what would climate change be like on a different planet? We're just trying to make sure that the games are as accurate as possible. Probably most folks who are listening were like me and thought that most games were sort of (laughs) violent-oriented. But there is this growing movement of folks making games for social change. We're
1: trying to sort of acknowledge that we humans as a species play one of the biggest roles in causing the climate crisis. And at the same time, we also hold the key to solving it. So I also talked to
4: Jay McGregor. He's a film production student at USC and part of a team of seven who worked on the game and he was one of its narrative designers.
1: The game is focusing on the, the human dimension of the climate crisis, like in terms of our relationships mm-hmm. with each other and how that'll help us deal with it.
7: I loved that immediately with Row, you're thrust into this very cinematic situation with a lot of drama. And you're clearly a very impoverished community that, as it turns out, has been dealing with environmental justice, threats. And uh, that, on top of just gameplay that's pretty fun rowing, you know, It's, (laughs) it's really fun just to move your boat slowly and steadily. It gives you time to ponder the deepness of the narrative. Okay, so there's this feature uh, in the game Ira called the
4: trust meter. So I think that's on your screen right now. Can you read those instructions?
0: The trust meter measures the level of trust between you and Nico. The value affects how easily you're able to row with him. Oh, so we have to row together. Mm-hmm.
4: Right, so there's going to be these moments where you have to make a decision through different dialogue options you get or actions you take that will affect your uh, trust level with your enemy, Nico. So what's your level of trust with him right now?
0: Eighty. Two oh, percent.
4: Nice. I have been choosing some other dialogue options.
1: I'm at like forty-five percent right now. <laughs> Ultimately, the idea of that was like the way you interact with each other either increases your ability to cooperate or can entrench the level of animosity between you two. And if you guys don't trust each other as much, you guys are going to go slower because you're going to be in sync and you have to kind of try hard to work together. And so if you make a choice that increases the trust between you and Nico, you can build human capital, which is an important resource to escape the crisis you guys are in. So
4: I've known about the Climate Jam for a couple of years. And before I fully played through it, I was kind of surprised a game like Row that, on its face really leans into these classic climate dystopian themes. Won the grand prize for a competition that's focused on climate optimism and solutions. So uh, I asked Jay why his team wanted to focus on dystopia so much.
1: Yeah, it's kind of doom and gloom with the whole dystopia world. But at the same time, I think if you just stay in that place of just feeling hopeless. It can often translate into apathy, which I mm-hmm. can see a lot among people who are my age, because it's such a daunting thing. And so we wanted to go through that emotion of feeling hopeless, but then having conflict occurred that would make people have to change in some way. We can't really solve this issue of the climate crisis without some form of like collective action. And then in order to have collective action, that requires us to work with each other, including those that we might not necessarily agree with, and so hopefully, I think that's the power of video games. They have a very sort of interactive, participatory element to them that like, can not only change people at an intellectual level in terms of making them aware of these issues, but also can touch people at an emotional level. And I think that's a powerful thing.
2: Roe is kind of dystopian in certain ways, but the fact that they ultimately create a situation where opposing characters can connect and have to work together is an incredible statement and they bury you deeply into that antagonism that's going on. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really effective. And I think those are the tools that narrative games really give you to work with. I think it's so important because gosh, don't we live in a world where it's very hard to cross the aisle and work together? We all do kind of have a common cause. And if there's ways, even in our differences that we can work together towards it, that's how we'll have a bright and beautiful future.
0: Well, I think this is an interesting game to play with kids, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So then you could have a discussion about hopefulness and making decisions about your future and who, who do you trust and how to trust people. Because, yeah, a lot of things we see are dystopian and a lot of things that are happening now make you think that the future is going to be dystopic. <laughs> yeah. um, maybe this is a kind of game that you can have a, as a teaching opportunity to play with kids. And maybe it, uh, they can talk out their fears by playing this game. What did you feel right. about the, you know, being on the raft or, or, or surviving or making a choice of who to save?
4: Yeah, and you know, I know not everyone plays video games. Not everyone's going to get a chance to play these, but there is something Dargan said about why he thinks this matters, and I thought it was a great
7: point. As a climate scientist, I spend a lot of time just looking at data, computer model simulations, and. You see a lot of red dots, meaning drought or really strong rainfall events. But I think to see that through artistic eyes, you realize how much story there is behind any of those data points, behind any kind of extended drought. There's always going to be winners and losers and those fighting over Mm -hmm. scarce resources. And then the approaching flood in this game also is is just really dramatic. makes you think that all data should be analyzed with an artistic eye in that way.
4: And that kind of reminded me of uh, what you just said about kids talking about their fears playing through them. It's like basically the appeal of a horror movie, to me at least. You're able to like experience these kind of intense emotions in a controlled, safe environment uh, and have a little remove from it and maybe process them in a way you wouldn't be able to if you were too close to it.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. I loved it. I, you know, I'm going to play it again. Can I, can I play it again?
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. <laughs> I'm going to try the other options and see what happens.
4: Okay, great. Uh, well, other people can play Roe and the other games from this year's Climate Jam. And you can even listen to a song that Dargan wrote and sang about his love of science, uh, which is amazing. That's all at our website at sciencefriday.com games. Yeah, thanks again, Ira.
0: Sci-Fi Digital producer, Peter Schmidt. I'm Ira Plato. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Remember flip books? Those little handheld paper books that were like a small movie in your hand? An image just a little bit different on every page? And if you flip the pages fast enough, you could see a bird fly out of a cage or a cartoon character walk around. Maybe you even made one in school. Well, I want you to meet an artist who does something like that. But his flipbooks are mechanical, they're self-powered, and they loop like perpetual motion machines, creating beautiful animated images of birds and insects flying, complete with satisfying clockwork clicks. J.C. Fontenive is a Brooklyn-based artist and subject of our latest Sci Arts video. Welcome to Science Friday, J.C.
8: Hi, thank you.
0: Nice to have you. You know, to, to describe what it looks like, you basically have... Photographs that are hanging that flip over, like those old clocks that go from, you know, 105 to 106 and they kind of flip over.
8: Yeah, it's the split flap mechanism, which was invented in the 50s by an Italian. They were called Solari signs in train stations and were made into clocks and things like that. I think they call them analog digital clocks, where it was like the step between analog to digital. It's the same mechanism sped up. with a a film on it. Mm -hmm.
0: And you almost have to think like an inventor and an artist then,
8: right? That's true. I think art is a type of invention. And you're constantly coming up with new ways of working with materials and things as an artist. So for me to make machines a type of of art or a language was interesting for me to do that.
0: That's gorgeous stuff. You mentioned your art being a language. What do you find yourself then trying to say?
8: Well, I'm interested in a lot of different things, but abstraction is one of them. And for me, using movement in an abstract way was, has been something that I've tried to investigate for a long time. It's kind of like classical music where there aren't words or narrative, but there's some kind of primal thing that you understand about it. The imagery is uh, figurative. There's still an abstraction with colors and shapes and the way things move, different rhythms that I feel like are more of a primal thing that we can understand.
0: Speaking of primal, I mean, you're really a throwback to the original days of animation, right? With everything being digital now, do you feel like you're recreating a more romantic period in this mechanical way instead of just everything digital?
8: I, it's definitely a response to that. And I when I was drawing thousands of drawings and had a stack of paper a foot high um, that I made on a light table, I didn't want to just photograph those and throw them away. I liked the drawings. I like the physical object and the being in the physical world. The material aspect of it is definitely something that to me is soul satisfying,
0: yeah. And your work depends on something you know we used to call persistence of vision theory. You begin by actually seeing each individual card, right? But as you speed it up, your eye then connects all the cards together.
8: Yeah, the, the persistence of vision is a uh, theory, and it's just trying to explain the illusion that happens when you see any moving image a cinema screen or a television screen or a flipbook. The, they're all based on the same thing, which is there is no such thing as a moving image, really. It's just still images shown in succession. Persistence of vision is a theory, so it's not really sure how it works. It either there's a latency on the retina or maybe it happens in the brain where the images persist for once they're beyond a certain frame rate and start to blend and become motion.
0: What do you hope that audiences who look at this work, since it is really a, such a throwback, take away from seeing it or you hope that they see?
8: I like the idea that it's a very visceral... Thing. It has sound. It has image. I mean, there's even wind coming off of it. I think it's something that is more basic and gets back to a more rudimentary part of the visual world and experience in general.
0: Well, thank you very much for taking time to be with us today. Great stuff.
8: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
0: JC Fontenive is an illustrator and installation artist based in Brooklyn, New York. Of course, as I say, radio just doesn't do enough justice to these flipbooks. You can see JC's gorgeous animated flipbook machines in a video by Luke Groskin. It's up there on our website, ScienceFriday.com flipbook. That's ScienceFriday.com flipbook. And that's about all the time we have for this week. If you missed any part of the program or you'd like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcast or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. And of course, we're active all week on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Send us feedback. Tell us what you'd like us to cover. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato.